This morning we continue our study of Luke's Gospel, and our scripture comes to us from Luke chapter 12, verses 13 to 21. Then one man from the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man, who made, you, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of the things he possesses. Then he spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I'll pull down my barns and build greater. And there I will store all my crops and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul... You have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you've provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord. So this parable comes while thousands of people are clamoring to get to Jesus. When you, when you read Luke's gospel and Matthew's gospel, it's organized a little differently and some of the details vary because they, they include different conversations for the purpose of emphasis. But the point is thousands of people are coming towards Jesus. Jesus starts having a conversation with his disciples first. Because you can imagine being a simple fisherman your entire life and suddenly throngs, masses, thousands are coming to clamor to be with you. It's intimidating. And the first thing Jesus says is, hey, beware the leaven of the Pharisees. In other words, don't let this get to your head. So that's the first goalpost. But then Jesus says a couple of other things, like don't fear these people, fear God. If you're going to fear anybody, don't fear the people who can kill your body. Fear the one who, after you're dead, can relegate your soul to hell. That's really strong language. Terrifying. But Jesus isn't trying to freak out his disciples, of course, because there's ministry to be done. So what's his purpose in saying this? His very next line after saying that is, but this God, who has all authority... To give you the trajectory that you've had in life, which is to reject him and not want him, and have that carry on into eternity and be separated from him, which is what the scriptures call hell. This God knows how many hairs are on your head, and he knows when a sparrow falls, and he knows so intimately and loves so deeply his creation, this is your God. And so Jesus says right after saying, don't fear these guys, fear God, Jesus says, fear not. Sparrows are sold for pennies. This God of the cosmos loves you. You're, so he sets up these two goalposts. Goal Don't let all the people get to your head. Don't clamor after the acceptance. And also, don't fear anybody. If you're going to fear anybody, fear God. That's his pre-service. That's his pre-game, pre-game huddle. And then this guy shouts out from the crowd this text we just read. And, he, and so now Jesus turns from talking to his disciples and he addresses the crowd and he gives this parable of this rich fool. So we're going to look at a few things as we unpack this parable. The problem of discontent, the anatomy of a fool, and the liberating richness of the gospel. So first let's look at this problem of, get, of discontent. In, in verse 13, it says, it, the guy's upset about not getting his inheritance. He's calling his brother out in public. And it's interesting because according to the law, the firstborn son got, got two-thirds, the youngest son got one-third, the women in the ancient world were, uh, in, the intention was in that scheme 
to be cared for by your brothers. This is the way the ancient world operated. And so it's interesting that Jesus doesn't go into a speech about justice or equity or a number of other things. Jesus responds to this apparent claim of injustice, tell my brother to give me what is rightfully mine. And while going through life without an inheritance is a problem, Jesus seems to think that covetousness is a much deeper problem. Because this is the response. And so, and actually, you know, very shortly after this, we're going to get to it through our study, Jesus is going to talk about another guy who wanted his inheritance very deeply in another parable, the prodigal, right? So this, uh, the problem of discontent is that when our souls are disquieted, they're like these restless waves. They turn up envy. They turn up greed. They turn up covetousness. And what is the answer? To be soothed materially. Constant opportunity to look to be satisfied and soothed by material goods. So in verse 14, Jesus says, Who made me the judge over you? It's interesting because he is, of course, the judge of the universe. But he's, he's poking at something here and he says, You need to beware of this covetousness. And in the Greek, it's much stronger uh, because it's, the, it's a military term to guard or to be on guard. So Jesus is saying you have to aggressively intentionally guard against covetousness because it just plagues humanity. The trust in wealth, the illusion of security that comes with wealth, right? The life of ease and comfort that comes with wealth. Right? It just is something that's just always in the waters of the human experience. And discontent is actually baked into our modern Western life. Discontent is actually baked into the way about which we go about having our economy function. Our, our economy in the modern West would not function well at all without discontent. So we've actually baked covetousness in. And it's an endless treadmill of consumerism and the fear of lack is a constant conversation. It just, it's, you can't go very long without hearing about the fear of lack, the constant conversation. If you're a young person, you've probably heard a thousand times over the last few years how you're never going to be able to afford a home. It's just a constant, unrelenting conversation about the fear of lack. And that has an impact on the psyche. And Jesus is getting that with this parable. Parable. Parable, sorry. Excuse me. This parable. Um, So, this rich fool cannot answer a very basic question. The very basic question is how much is enough? He can't answer it. There's no such thing as how much is enough. And when did that problem begin? We can track this covetousness back to the garden. We can go back to Genesis, to how the whole thing fell apart, about the whole thi- how the whole thing ended in tears, and we can see that idolatry to self and covetousness are ugly twins. Enjoy the flourishing of all creation, have absolutely everything as an image bearer of God. Well, that's not enough. Be God. Now we're talking. So we can trace these ugly twins of idolatry and covetousness back to the jump. And when you look at verse 15, Jesus says, life doesn't consist in the abundance of possessions. But again, we're Canadian. And we're sorry. But we disagree. Because in this country, your life absolutely does consist. It absolutely does. And maybe here's going, I don't know, Paul, that's... 
maybe you should temper the language, for every dollar we spend, I'm talking about consumer, just credit card, needing stuff. For every dollar Canadians spend, we're $1.82 in consumer debt. It's just baked in. We're not happy. We got more stuff than anybody in world history. We're more medicated than anybody in world history. We have more things available to us than anybody in world history. But we are chronically dissatisfied. This insatiable churning of the waves, stirring up the dirt of covetousness, plagues humanity. It just always has. It looks different in every country, in every context, but I'm talking to Canadians. So I'm talking about our insane credit card debt. It's, it's mind-blowing. Now... There are a lot of sinful qualities in the human experience. Lots. Lots of ways in which we don't love our neighbors. Many. So how is it that covetousness made God's top ten? It was mentioned earlier in the liturgy that it's the tenth commandment. Thou shalt not covet. I mean, there's a lot of other thou shalt not. Like, I can think of many things that could have, been, could have made the top ten. But in the wisdom and the mind of God, covetousness is the erosion the unstoppable force of decay in relationships, the dissatisfaction that leads to the ruin of the soul, of communities, of the world. When you think about the Ten Commandments, let's quote them all together. I'm just kidding. I won't do that to you. (laughs) The first four lead to the last six. The first four have to do with how we relate to God. The last six have to do with how we relate to civic life and to one another, which is why in the great Shema, which we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, the law experts would summarize all of the laws of God in saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. You've kept the law. So if we were to look at the Ten Commandments, the first four of, well, they all flow from the first one, which is thou shalt love the Lord your God. And the second one is, thou shalt not bow down before any graven image. And the third one is, thou shalt not take the Lord thy God's name in vain. And the fourth one is, thou shalt remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Right? So if you've organized your soul in that way, the rest are going to flow. But if you don't organize mainly that first one, by the time you get to number 10 of covetousness, this is the ruin of culture. And so, Jesus says, hey, life consists in a lot more than this. And when we think about sin, the very first mention of sin, which I've, I've, I'm repeating myself, but I'm doing it on purpose. The very first mention of sin in Genesis is when, when Cain is going to murder his brother. And it's the first time the word sin is used where God says, sin is crouching at the door like an animal, beast-like, animalistic, this unsatiable hunger that needs to be just fed by impulse. That's how sin is very first word is even used and depicted in scripture. And so driven by that discontent, driven by that animalistic covetousness, when this is at work, we use people instead of people being objects of our love, they're tools to accomplish our vision. They're tools to fill our happiness. They're tools to meet our needs. They're tools to fill our barns. And so when you think about the way sin was described that way, and you think about this covetousness, and you think about Jesus' response to this guy and says, oh, wow, that's a problem, but that thing didn't get divided properly. He gets right underneath it and goes, oof, this covetousness is going to be the ruin of your life. And 
it's significant because uh, I grew up with lots of dogs in our house. Some of you guys have dogs and you, uh, uh, you're going to relate to this story. Growing up with dogs in the house, the dogs have a manic energy around food. No dog, I don't care how you're like, I'm sorry, but we spent $18 million on dog training. Our dog is perfect. No, no dog has a calm energy around food because it is in their nature to be manic about it. This anxious energy about the food. They can be the greatest trained dog in the world, but as soon as the, when the food comes out at the table, there's this manic energy. And what we did is what you're not supposed to do, which is we would give our dogs food from the table. You're training them in the absolute wrong way. You're just training them to be even more manic. And when you feed a dog from the table, like I did many times as a child, you could drop that food and that dog will catch it in midair. It won't even hit the ground. And it'll chomp once, maybe twice, down. And then there's the manic energy. Where's the next one? It didn't taste it. It didn't enjoy it. No dog. All the dog lovers are like, we're sending emails. Relax. Your dogs are amazing. All of your dogs are incredible. They're not children. I feel like that needs to be said. But they're incredible. They're wonderful. But the dog doesn't go, mm. Mm. I'm just going to sit here and enjoy Like, it's just not in the nature. That is covetousness. The manic energy, the moment the soul gets what it thinks that it needs and thinks that it wants, and it goes, pick your poison, and goes after that thing. I mean, the immediate context here is money. So that's the, that's the immediate thing. It's never enough. It's not enough. You can't, it, you, the rich guy is worried about his wealth. Verse 17, I have no place to store my crops. What am I going to do? This could be result in profit loss. Uh, uh, uh. I know what I do. I'll, I'll tear down the old ones. I'll build up big ones. We'll keep it all. We'll, we'll make sure we don't lose any of it. Manic energy, the covetousness does in the soul. Never enough. The problem in the world, of course, and you know this, is not a lack of resources, though that's a strong narrative in lots of places. The problem is that we have misplaced our self-love. We have elevated ourselves, and because we have said there is no God, we are God, life is very short. And because we know human life on planet Earth is very short, we got to get all we can, can all we get, sit on the can. Maybe we'll give a little bit away to appease the conscious, do some virtual signaling, look like a philanthropist. But underneath it all, if there is no God, if there is no worship to God, if there is no enjoyment and quietness in the soul, it's all just churning. The predatory profit chasing of discontent. Let's move on. The anatomy of a fool. So in verse 17, Jesus exposes this manic anxiety of those who trust in the wealth. Because this guy's like, what am I going to do? And what's interesting is that it never enters the psyche to give it away. And I think that's here on purpose. I know it's here on purpose because this immediate application of this parable is it's very simple. It's very obvious. There's nothing complicated about it. He's warning the rich because it is very easy to trust in riches. 
But remember, there's thousands of people here. And none of them are rich. Maybe a handful are, maybe a handful are rich. But just like historically speaking, we've looked back at the life of Jesus and who followed him in the region and what was going on. At the, and like you do that, ex, that historical deep dive and the thousands that are following Jesus, most of them are poor. So is, Jesus, is, is this parable for the elite 1% to get cut to the heart and then for the thousands of us to go, ha, 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 stick it to the rich, Jesus? Or is there a way in which this covetousness can be at work with those who don't have riches? And the answer is yes, because those who have wealth are warned not trust in the wealth. And the rest of us who don't have the wealth have to be honest enough to realize we spend most of our lives obsessing and coveting wealth. Seeking to amass wealth, seeking the security that, it, that comes with wealth. So we're not off the hook. We don't get to be like, yo, I could have just taken this Sunday off. Just go home a happy birthday and enjoy your cake and why you got to bother preaching this. Because none of us are rich. Because we need to beware, guard against the narrative that we will find our security in the material things. So he gives this parable of building the barns. And barns take a lot of time and effort and focus and expense to build. If we were to just sort of sit in Jesus' illustration and marinate in the metaphor, the building of a barn is like a a time-consuming, brain-consuming endeavor. And so I think it's a good opportunity for us to ask ourselves... What are my barns? Maybe it is money, literally money. The immediate contextual application of this parable. Maybe it is money. That's a good diagnostic question. But if it is not money, don't let yourself off the hook. I can't let myself off the hook to be like, I'm not building any barns in my life. Because there's a good opportunity to ask, where does all my headspace and energy and time and money go? Because that's the barn And if I don't have any time or headspace or energy or money to give to the people sitting in the chairs in here to like get into your life and care about you and love you and take time with you and disciple you and walk with you and like just be a follower of Jesus, that that means I've just spent all my time and energy thoroughly curved inward thinking about myself building a barn. Those are good diagnostic questions for those of us that aren't rich. Right? Which I'm going to go ahead and say is probably all of us in here. But globally speaking, all of us are quite rich. And I don't need to revisit the $1.82 consumer debt thing, but most of us in here, probably all of us in here, could sit down and go, huh, <laughs> where is all my money going? And what is this narrative that I'm living into, like I don't have enough or whatever? Or get, I mean, what am I doing exactly? What's the fuel in my engine here. These are good diagnostic questions. Verse 19, Jesus says, And I will say to myself, Soul, you have laid up many good years, uh, many good things for many years. Ah, yes. Started from the upper middle, now we're here. Some people started from the bottom, now we're here. Ah, soul, what's wrong with that? I mean, I worked hard for everything I have. What's wrong with that? I'm not going to create Redeemer's Book of Leviticus. That's a very popular way to preach. Right? A lot of people love it. Here's how much money you should spend on a car, guys. I throw a number out. Here's how long you should keep your cars. I throw the number out. Here's how much you should spend on entertainment. I throw the number out. And some, ple- and some people are like, oh, gosh, this just seems like 
Like really juvenile, like I'm being infantilized by the preacher that he's giving me Redeemer's Law of Leviticus on, he, these are the approved movies and books, and like I just keep on going. But you know, there's a lot of North Americans who are like, oh, write it down, okay, what's the next, okay, okay. Infantilized, can't have their lives guided by the wise guidance of the wisdom of God. And I, I love you and I don't believe that about you. So we're not going to get into the Redeemer book of Leviticus here and talk about how and where your money should be going. But I'm going to unapologetically provoke you to consider some of these things so that we can truly love and care for the people around us and preserve the preaching of Christ in this city and care for the needs in our, in our church and do what we can to be a blessing to this city. So notice the self-talk. Soul, he's talking to his soul. Soul, I've laid up many things for many years. And Jesus responds to that kind of conversation. right? Eat, drink, and be merry. Jesus responds and he says, God says, fool. He's not name-calling. You know, God's, God's above name-calling, guys. So when God starts throwing words out, it's really great for us to be like, okay, what, what could be meant with such strong language? Because God's not insecure. When we, name, when we call people fools, there could be a lot of things going on. When God calls someone a fool, this is, just, this is a judicial statement of fact. Oh, man, I worked hard. I built these bigger barns. I've earned, I've earned it all. I'll just enjoy this life that comes, this life of pleasure that comes at the end of all my hard work. And God goes, what a fool. That's offensive. Why does God say that? When you look at the wisdom literature in the Proverbs, fools fall into generally two categories. The first kind of fool is naive and gullible, and they listen to the voices of everyone. I listened to a podcast, and they said this, and so now this is how I think about life and God and money and mercy. And, right? Well, this, this is my political messiah, and they said that, and after all, I've got, I'm a card-carrying member of that party, so this is how I... Absolute, whatever voice comes, no filter for the word of God. There's those kinds of fools, listening to everybody. The other kind of fool is the obstinate fool. They don't listen to anyone. They're the smartest person in the room all the time. Obstinate fools. Can't tell them a thing. They already know. But, the, but both of those fools are very different, but they have something in common. And what they have in common is they do not share God's view of reality. And God says, if you do not share my view of reality, you're a fool. Because I am the creator of all reality. And in the end, when Christ returns and... I'm going to renew this material reality. And I'm going to raise my people from death itself so that they can enjoy and flourish in my intended reality. And if you're outside that reality, that is foolishness. It doesn't mean you're not intelligent. You could be the most decorated academic in the room. So it's not about intelligence. It's about how do you perceive reality. And if you don't perceive it the way God perceives it, God says, you're an absolute fool. But how does this rich guy prove that he's a fool? It's actually all over the parable. I mean, how is his view of reality not like God's view of reality? It's all over the parable. My crops, my barns, my goods, my soul. Well, they're not your crops, and they're not your barns, and they're not your goods. And that's not even your soul. 
<laughs> the air in your lungs is a gift. So you see, we don't fear God like you fear spiders in a phobic way. What God wants in the, the narrative of all scripture and the plan of all redemption is that we would fear him in a liberating way. The awe, the wonder, the majesty, that his voice is so ultimate and so supreme, I will align my life to his reality. Money, who I see when I look in the mirror, identity, how I view mercy, justice, the poor, the outcast, the refugee, the widow, sexuality, all of it. I I take all of it and I say, I'm so amazed that this universe didn't just spin itself into existence for no reason. I am not a collocation of molecules. The, the reason why I enjoy beauty and sunsets and love and music and art is not because there's a chemical cocktail in my head that's just telling me to like it, which of course does not propagate the human species in any way. That is not true. There is a God of intention and glory and beauty and wonder and majesty who has created us for community and love that orients around Him. And that all of the beauty that I see in the city is just a pale residue of what was intended and what is coming. So therefore, if there is anything that is out of line with the wise guidance of God's word, I will bend my knee to it and not be a fool. I will align myself with his reality. Because everything is his. So you see, stewardship is how we ought to see our lives, not owners. It's not mine, mine, mine. It's God's, God's, God's. And stewardship is not a burden Generosity is not a burden. This short little life of ours, it's so short. I mean, Redeemer is going to be 10 years next year, 9 years this April, 10 years, 10, a decade. If my health is good, I pray to God my health is good. You know, I think I've missed like one Sunday in a decade by the grace of God. Like, that's right up there with parting the Red Sea, I think. <laughs> to just not get sick. I'm not doing it. I'm not, you know, I'm not like a health buff. Ask my family. This is just sheer grace. This is just God saying, wow, this guy needs to, it would be good if Jesus was preached. So despite that ungodly, you know, amounts of chocolate and red meat he's eating. So if my health is good, I got, what, another decade left of this? Before we got to start training up someone to preach Christ into the future? It's not going to be long. And it's not a burden to look at our short little lives and be like, you know, let's give our time away. Let's sit and love people. And let's get outside of ourselves. Curve outside of ourselves. Yeah, but Pastor Paul, I don't have a lot of money. I don't have a lot of time. My physical health isn't good. My mental health isn't good. Yeah, man, welcome to the party, pal. All of us are ailing in some way because life is short. But we curve out of ourselves. And this stewardship is not a burden. Generosity is not a burden. Giving our lives away is not a burden. You know what's a burden? Greed, covetousness, worry. Just the inward, unrelenting cycle of chronic dissatisfaction, worrying about your wealth, never worried if you have enough. It's all burden. But to see ourselves as the stewards of all, this is tremendous liberation. So the fool says... I'm going to eat, drink, I'm going to be married. I mean, what's wrong with that? I earned it. Meritocracy for the win. Hang on a second. If we're living in abundance, if we're living in comfort, and we're unmoved by the need of the people sitting in the chairs around us, this is a catastrophic departure of the one whose image we've been made. To quote 2 Corinthians 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... 
for our sakes became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. I was in Ethiopia for a short period of time doing some work, delivering some Bibles to various regions where we had translated into the languages of those tribes. And in the short region I was there, my guide, his name was Michael Alemu. And Michael used to always say, every time a North American comes here, I say to them, please, please, live simply so others can simply live. And I never forgot that. This is the heart of this parable. Living simply so others can simply live. Because, of course, speaking about our wealth in this way, it's, it conflicts with two worldviews. One worldview is we're here and we do stuff and then we're gone and then we die and that's the end of it. And we move into a, a plane of non-existence because there's nothing after death. But while we're here, we just tell ourselves scores of things are incredibly valuable. And we just try not to think about the fact that the scientific community among us know that at some point the sun will run out of hydrogen. Let's not think about that, because the city would descend into anarchy, and it would be burning the streets like France when they win football games. So let's not have that. Instead, let's just rumble along like there's a tremendous amount of meaning in life. But as Christians, we're not dislocated from where we think everything is headed. We're actually living into great congruency with where everything is headed, which is renewal and beauty and restoration. So we are ministers of that. And therefore, the pathway to joy is to get out of ourselves. The pathway to peace and to, and to the true comfort that our souls long is to get out of ourselves, which leads to the final thing, the liberating richness of the gospel. I've kind of been talking about this the whole way through, so I just have a few kind of closing thoughts here. But in verse 21, Jesus says, So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so on the surface, the being rich toward God, it can seem like inaccessible religious language. But let's not forget the immediate context of this parable is just talking about money. It's just talking about your stuff. And so he's like, you know, if you are rich toward God in the ways that I've been describing, in the worship and the rest and the joy, if there are just rhythms built into our lives of meditation and of rest, then that richness toward God manifests itself in particular ways. Jesus, the Son of Man, was human. Human being. Not, he wasn't floating six inches off the ground pretending to kind of, I get you guys. He was human. And he was not rich. And he had everything he needed when he needed it. And spoiler alert for next Sunday's sermon, that's exactly where this whole thing goes. Not worrying about stuff. He had everything he needed when he needed because, of course, he was rich in God. And so we look at this and say, how do I just enter into this rest, this pathway of joy? We're in a season of Lent right now, six weeks until Christ, uh, Christmas, six weeks until Easter. And historically speaking, this, the, the season of Lent practiced differently through church history in different contexts. It's not something that you can specifically um, find, explain in a detailed way in the scripture. But the premise, is, the premise of fasting is part of the rhythm, which is in Scripture, which is a helpful and good practice. It is an intentionally set-aside season of focus and prayer. And we don't fast to get things from God. There's a sense in which the, the fast of a meal is offering our very bodies to God. In Lent, sometimes as moderns, we'll talk about I'm giving up social media or television or all these things. That's good. This is not a criticism. But that's not a fast. That's abstaining from things, and it's good. So I'm not... Please hear me. 
If that's what you've chosen to abstain from, it's abstaining. But it isn't a fast. Scripturally speaking, the fast is food. And the reason that it's food is because your body immediately becomes acutely aware with how fragile we are. And so it, um, it is an immediate alignment with our very need for sustenance. And then in our prayer and meditation, so if I'm not eating lunch, and I say, I'm going to fast lunch this day, and instead I'll just take some time to pray, and to just meditate and think and reflect on God, thank Him for His goodness. The hunger that I'm feeling is a, a, does a deep and profound uh, alignment of my, my need for God being my very sustenance. So it, it's a transformative work. So scripturally speaking, it's always been food because that just does something uh, in our humanness that is unlike abstaining from other things, which again is not a criticism. It's just a different practice. And so I think there's an opportunity for us over the next six weeks to consider uh, how you might... Uh, Choose a fast during the week. Fasting a meal would look different for all of us, of course. But I think there's great value in the timing of our study in Luke and here being in Lent and leading up to, uh, to Easter. And each Sunday of Lent, there's no fasting. Each Sunday in Lent is for feasting. Come on, somebody. I'm preaching better than you're amening. I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm just getting in touch with my Pentecostal side all the all the Presbyterians are like, well, what are you doing right now? Well, I'm telling you, what, you guys need to visit more Pentecostal churches because they're the best audiences in the world. Now listen, when Sunday is, is for feasting, it's for living into the reality of what's coming. The day without end, the seventh day of creation, the restoration of all things. The, reali- <laughs> the, realize- the realization of justice and goodness, the eradication of evil and sorrow, the end of tears. Right? So Sundays in Lent, so during the, week of, during the weeks of Lent, you might fast meals to get in touch with, Oh God, where have I been building my barns? And then on Sundays, we eat and we drink and we be merry because in the end Christ will renew all things. This is the glorious promise of the gospel, that God has redeemed and justified his people. He's making us new spiritually. He promises to provide for us materially. God will restore our world and our bodies materially. And the conviction of these gospel truths fuels generosity. That is true rich living. Let's pray.